Looking for a fun way to win 25 times your money this football and basketball season? Test your skills on Prize Picks, the most exciting way to play daily fantasy sports. Just select two or more players, pick more or less on their projection for a wide variety of stats, and place your entry. It's as easy as that. If you have the skills, you can turn $10 into $250 with just a few taps. Easy gameplay, quick withdrawals, and injury insurance on your picks are what make Prize Picks the number one daily fantasy sports app. Ready to test your skills? Join the Prize Picks community of more than 7 million players who have already signed up. Right now, Prize Picks will match your first deposit up to $100. Just visit prizepicks.com/play100 and use code play100. That's code play100 at prizepicks.com/play100 for a first deposit match up to $100. Prize Picks, daily fantasy sports made easy. One of the most amazing innings ever played in a World Cup happened right at the start of the men's edition in 1975. Literally game one. Well, not quite. There was actually four games played on day one. But this was the match with the home side in it. So let's call that the first one. England smashed 334 in that game. Now, it was 60 overs instead of 50 in those days, but that's a massive score. Dennis Amos scored 137 from 147. That would have been a great knock in the late 90s. But to play in innings like that in 1975, extraordinary. I also love that he scored it with 18 fours and zero sixes. Amos was scoring close enough to run a ball all the way through his innings, but it never occurred to him to actually slog a couple into the pavilion. He was a fine batter, of course. He averaged 46 in test cricket and 47 in ODIs. But the most amazing thing was that he made 400s in only 18 games of limited overs cricket. And in those days, making triple figures wasn't as common as it is now. So it really is an incredible record. However, the knock of Amos is not the one I want to talk about. It was the innings that followed his. When chasing 335, India made 132 for three from their 60 overs. Barry Wood bowled five overs and allowed four runs. Peter Lever went at 16 runs from his 10. No one scored over 37. And that was Gundapa Vishwanath, who scored at a strike rate of 62, which towered over the rest of his teammates. Brijesh Patel was not out from 16 from 57 balls at the end. But those are not the innings that we are here to talk about. We are here to talk about the fact that Sanal Gavaskar made 36 not out from 174 deliveries. He batted the entire innings and he scored one boundary. And his knock was essentially a dirty protest of the fact that 335 was unchaseable. And while it might sound like the grumpy ramblings of a man who probably didn't want to play ODI cricket in the first place, at this stage, there had only been 18 ODIs ever played, and the highest ever score was 266, which was also England against India. So you could see why a new record 25% higher than the previous one would have looked silly. None of that changes the fact that Gavaska gave up on that game. So men's World Cup cricket started with one of the greatest players of all time forfeiting his innings. Welcome to Double Century, the podcast about the history of cricket. This season we are celebrating the Cricket World Cup, which is the first foray into modern sport thinking. We'll have an episode on every tournament that has been played, but for this one we wanted to go back to the start of the men's tournament, which had a dirty protest, a hemorrhoid operation, and perhaps the best World Cup match that anyone has ever played, plus 
Clive Lloyd. There were three pretty interesting games in the 1975 World Cup. West Indies entered the tournament as favourites, but I don't want people to think they were an incredible team. This was not the West Indies of a few years later. Andy Roberts was their main seamer, but the rest of the attack was just nowhere near as strong. Keith Boyce was a good bowler, but certainly nothing like Holder or Garner. Van Byrne Holder was another decent seamer, but again, not a fiery fast bowler that you would see in the next generation. And the final seamer was Bernard Julian, an all-rounder who bowled a little bit of seam. The rest of their attack was made up by the part-time offerings of Viv Richards and Clive Lloyd. But their opposition in this game, Pakistan, was also not at full strength. And their reasons are absolutely spectacular. Imran Khan couldn't play in this game because he was taking his exams at Oxford. Asif Iqbal, their captain, couldn't play in this game because he was having a hemorrhoid operation. (laughs) Even in the history of Pakistan cricket, which includes genital warts, eating a ball and an injury while having an affair with a film star, these are top-notch excuses for missing a game for your nation. This meant that it was Javed Meandad's first game, someone who would eventually change the way that ODI batting was done. But, but of course, he was only playing this match because of Asif's arse problem and the fact that Oxford wouldn't let Imran Khan move his exam around. Pakistan made 266 and they had 350s, including a better than a run of all 58 from Wazim Raja. He was a very attacking player who had a lot of strokes. And considering how slow the rest of his teammates went, it was quite a knock. When Safraz Nawaz, who was cricket's first ever reverse swing expert, even if he denies it, went through the West Indies' top order, which was an incredible one. Roy Fredericks, Gordon Greenwich, and Alvin Kalatran. They were all gone with the score on 36. But this was a stacked team. Rowan Canai batted at four, Clive Lloyd followed him, Viv Richards was at six, and they had Julian at seven. So there was plenty of batting in the middle. But they all failed except for Lloyd, who made a 50 before going out to me and Dad's part-time stuff. At that point, the favourite of the tournament looked like they were a chance of dropping only their second game. The score was 151 for 7, meaning that they needed 116 with three wickets in hand. But Derek Murray, a classical gloveman, came out and smoked his highest ODI score, making 61 from 76 balls and carrying the tail. But when Van Byrne Holder was dismissed for Safras's fourth wicket, the West Indies needed 64 runs in 14 overs with one wicket in hand. Roberts played very carefully at his end while Murray attacked, and Pakistan just couldn't break through. And with two overs left, the West Indies needed five runs. The medium pace bowler Purvis Mir came on and bowled a maiden, meaning they still needed five runs from the last over. The problem was that Pakistan's main bowlers were done, and so they had to give the over to either Mushtaq Muhammad or the part time Raja. They chose Raja, who usually bowled leggies, but a little bit like Mohamed Nawaz versus India in the last World Cup, he bowled medium pace for that last over. The first ball went for a leg by, but actually it went for two, because in going for the run, Pakistan gave away an overthrow. It meant that Roberts was back on strike, and he struck another two. So now these scores were level. And off the fourth ball of the over, Roberts found another single, and the West Indies had created a massive last-wicket partnership to win a World Cup game and also ensure their qualification in the next round. If the first game I mentioned was, well, stupid, and the second game was epic, well, then you really need to know about the semi-final because it is one of the craziest matches in World Cup cricket history. And I don't think it gets talked about enough these days. It was the semi-final, and it was England versus Australia, And quite rightly, the English were a little bit worried about Dennis Lilly and Jeff Thompson, who were very close to their prime at this point. 
And they had, of course, pummeled the English the previous summer. But there was a huge wind at one end. And so Lily picked the Kirkstall lane end at Haley, allowing the 23-year-old Gary Gilmore to bowl from the football stand end. This was only Gilmore's third one-day international. And he would only end up playing 20 internationals in total. He had a fairly modest but decent first-class record as a useful left-arm seamer and a number seven or a number eight bat. No one really saw him as a potential star, but it was very clear that he was handy. And despite getting the worst of the ends, after his first nine overs, Gilmore had the figures of six for ten. Five of his wickets were to in-swing, and that is underselling. The ball was hooping around, and England were completely destroyed and could only manage 93. However, the pitch was so helpful to bowlers, including some uneven bounce, that the hosts still thought they had a chance. And they were right. Australia fell to 39 for six. Do you know who came out to bat at that stage? Gary Gilmore. He smashes 28 from 28. And with Dougie Walters, who usually was a dasher himself, but in this innings only scoring at a strike rate of 46, Australia won that game without losing another wicket. And do you remember before I said it was Gary Gilmore's third one-day international? Well, it was also his third last one-day international. But let's talk about his second last one-day international, which happened to be the World Cup final a couple of days later, where Gilmore took 5 for 48. The West Indies were sent in, and they were 50 for 3, and they were in a lot of trouble. But that is when Clive Lloyd came out to bat. He hooked a 6 from Lily early on, and then went after Australia very hard. He would later say that the ball just hit the middle of his bat from ball 1, and when that happened, few people ever hit the ball harder than he did. So Gilmore kept taking regular wickets, but Lloyd almost doubled his nearest teammate and scored at 120 strike rate in an era where four and over was fine. The West Indies made 291 in their 60 overs, and Clive Lloyd made his 100 from 82 balls. This was a huge total, and Australia started really well. They were 81 for one, but from there on in, West Indies just took regular wickets on the back of Keith Boyce's four and three Australian runouts. At 233 for nine, the game was obviously over when Australia had Jeff Thompson and Dennis Lilly in the middle. They both averaged 13 in tests. They were pretty terrible, but not horrendous. But the problem was that they needed 60 runs. The problem for the West Indies was they just couldn't get that last wicket. And both of these bowlers just kept edging their way towards the total. There was even a faux end at one stage where Tomo was caught from a no ball. There was a throw at the stumps, but the crowd came on believing that match was over. And so Tomo and Lily just kept running. In the second last over, they were left with an improbable, but possible, 18 runs needed. But here the West Indies got their fourth run out of the innings, which was probably actually a stumping. As Tomo came down the wicket to slog, missed, and Murray rolled the ball onto the stumps. And we had our first ever men's World Cup winner. And there's one thing I want to mention about this entire tournament. It started with a star of the game basically blocking out a match because he didn't think it was a real contest. And it ended with two of the best teams of their era fighting as hard as they could to win and another great player scoring 100 off 82 balls. In the space of one tournament played in whites with red balls over 60 overs, one day international cricket went from something that basically didn't exist to the World Cup we know today. Thanks for listening. This podcast has an ad-free version that you can get via Patreon, and there are many other extras involved with being a member over there. In fact, this show would not exist if Patreon members had not helped us at the beginning and continue to support us. Cricket history does not pay. 
So any help you can give will be massive. And you'll find a link in the show notes to subscribe. Remember to please review, follow, tell your friends and family, and just people that you meet in parties about our show. All of that helps us grow. Double Century episodes are written by either Abhishek Mukherjee or myself, sometimes both of us. And I am Jared Kimber, and this is part of my podcast network. The podcasts are overseen by Nick McCorriston, who also edits and produces Double Century. And C.S. Chawanza is our man for social media clips. If you like the Double Century podcast, on top of subscribing and supporting us, there's actually way more content like this on the Jared Kimber YouTube page. 